And Psalm 119, verse 81, as we this morning go through our two stanzas in uh, the middle of Psalm chapter 119, we actually make our way to the half point of the psalm. And as we do so, there is this kind of poetic turning point. We make our way through the end of the first half, and then we make our way in the beginning of the second half. Some of you may recall last week, the two stanzas that we dealt with dealt primarily with um, finding the goodness of God in the midst of all of our affliction. Um, The Psalms, in fact, let's read a couple of those verses as I'm thinking about it to remind ourselves of some of what was said. He says here, I know, O Lord, in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to the promise of your servant. We learned how to find the goodness of God in the midst of our affliction. Friends, the Psalms are full of this reality that life will simply be full of its difficulties, its struggles, and its pain. And it's not just the Psalms, but it's all of Scripture that testify to the truth of that in our lives. But the Psalms are also clear. All of Scripture is also clear that a perfectly good and perfectly powerful God exists and cares for His people. So now, how is it that we as followers of Jesus Christ learn how to wrestle with both of these truths without neglecting one or the other? You see, guys, this is one of the temptations we face when we deal with these two things, the the difficulty and suffering and pain that comes into life with the reality that a good and powerful God really does exist. We might want to wrestle with those things by neglecting one of the two. We might want to just sort of ignore or suppress or explain away the, the pain and difficulty in life and pretend as if it's okay. Or we might get so caught up inside of the pain and difficulty that we refuse to even believe that a good and powerful and caring God exists. How do we wrestle with both of these things without neglecting one or the other? By taking an honest look at suffering and difficulty in life and at the same time an honest look at God. The first answer that we're going to read this morning is what Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in the 1800s, calls the midnight of the psalm. The psalmist is wary of waiting for God to show up. But the psalmist will also not stop talking to God. So we begin to answer a question like this, how should we talk to God when we think we have good reason to stop? The second stanza, we begin to climb out of that midnight, of that darkness. What is the way out of that kind of confusion, of that kind of fuzziness and murkiness and even the feeling of despair? What's the way out? The psalmist explains to us and reveals in his prayer that he has experienced the frailty of life, the frailty of people, the limits of others, those who love him and those who hate him. The psalmist has experienced unjust persecution inside of his life. And now as we listen to the inspired Word of God, we begin to learn how to turn to a God of stability and salvation even in the midst of this kind of difficulty. So let's begin reading in Psalm 119, starting in verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your Word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? 
For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. We hear this deep and vulnerable honesty from the psalmist. Guys, we need to keep this in mind as we read the Psalms personally, as we go through the Psalms corporately, as we're going through chapter 119. The Psalms are the inspired Word of God, and in it from time to time we actually hear the psalmist say things like this, I'm just about dead. They've almost made an end of me on earth. I don't know if I have another breath left in me. And when we hear the psalmist do these things, we're learning how to pray through these seasons. We're being given the Word of God on how to deal with these things. So even though sometimes we read this and it feels dark and difficult, we're learning the Word and the voice of God as we listen to the psalmist. And he begins by saying, my soul longs for your salvation. And in the New Living Translation, it puts it like this, I am worn out waiting for your rescue. I've been waiting, I've been waiting, I need you, I need you, I need you. I've just about had it. I don't know if I can wait any longer. The honest expression to God here. Psalmist is weary and tired of calling out to God without feeling like there's any kind of answer from Him. Part of what I think is so beautiful about the transition from this stanza into the next is how the next stanza begins to give us a way through, starts giving us a way out. And it's as if God has hardwired the answer to that question in creation itself. But we'll get that here in a few minutes. Notice some of what the psalmist says here in these first three or four verses of the stanza. My soul longs, I'm worn out with waiting for you. In verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. The psalmist has wept to the point where he doesn't know that he has any tears left. He has wept and he feels shriveled up. I mean, what an image that he uses here. For I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. If you can imagine an old piece of used wet leather placed out inside of the desert sun to just grow withered and cracked and broken and useless. And that's what the psalmist says. This is what I feel like a piece of shriveled up, dried, cracked leather. He needs judgment poured out on those who have done him harm. How long must your servant endure? When will you finally get around to judging those who persecute me? This isn't the only time in the Psalms when when David or one of the other psalmists says something like this. Speaking of his eyes and his eyes bearing witness to what's going on in his life, his eyes being a kind of prayer between him and God, In Psalm chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, he puts it like this. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Depart from me, for the Lord has heard my weeping. As we go through a passage of Scripture like this, guys, it is at this point where I believe we find the first place 
of guidance and comfort through darkness, through midnight, through difficulty. And I think our first moment of guidance and comfort is this fact. What we have in this passage of Scripture is a devoted follower of God who is loved by God, who is experiencing deep trouble, and is talking with God. Let me say that again because I think in that witness, I find guidance and encouragement. We have someone here who is a devoted follower of God. Not perfect, but a devoted follower of God. Someone who is actually perfectly loved by God. Someone who really is actually going through distress and difficulty. And then fourthly, someone who refuses to stop talking to God. That, to me, is a powerful combination in this passage of Scripture. Here's part of what I think is so powerful about this kind of combination. So often when we walk through difficult seasons of life and then we sort of make our way into our circles of Christian friends or we make our way into the church on Sunday morning, we're tempted to lead a kind of surface-level mask-wearing existence with each other. We sort of walk in, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing great. Things are wonderful, magnificent, great. Let's sit down and have a good morning and let's go back to everything that's great when we go and walk out of here on the other side. We're tempted to lead that kind of surface life when in fact, friends, so often of what, it, what the body of Christ is designed to do is to help us deal with seasons of life that are like this with each other, right? But we're tempted to sort of skim along the surface. It's really important as we walk through hard seasons in life that we find mature brothers and sisters in Christ to be open and honest with so that we can do these things well and faithfully. But we're tempted sometimes to just kind of wear the mask and let it go and lead a surface life. Now, on the flip side of that, I find this fascinating all the time. Now, we know if we think about that for a little while and we sort of process that, we know that that's actually a really shallow way sometimes of dealing with the realities of life and what life can do to us. But it also turns out that oftentimes, just all kinds of people and Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, we're drawn to church contexts where we are told everything is going to be okay. We're actually drawn to the context that says all you have to do is this kind of spiritual formula and all of the blessings will overflow tomorrow. That's all you have to do and everything is going to be just fine. We know that's shallow, but we're drawn to it. Here's part of the brilliance and the power of the psalmist is he drives us down a completely different path where you and I can take an honest look at whatever it is that is struggle and pain and difficulty and simultaneously take an honest look at who God is and what God is doing without neglecting one or the other. It's part of the genius of the Psalms. You see, the psalmist is actually giving us permission to pray this prayer. I am tired of waiting for you to show up. He gives us permission to pray that prayer. He gives us language for prayer like this. When will those who have done me harm finally find justice and judgment? We're given permission, we're given language. But here's import, a couple of important things about how the psalmist teaches us to pray these things. And the first is this. The psalmist prays honest prayers 
while avoiding control over God or just ignoring Him altogether. And here's what I mean by that. Everything the psalmist says is honest and absolute, and he's laying these things at God's feet, but they're all in the form of questions. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I believe that's a different prayer than praying, God, if my enemies are not dead by Tuesday afternoon, I'm out. Right? How many times have we sort of come up against that prayer or prayed that prayer? If you haven't done what I need you to do by, you know, this time... I'm over. It's not what the psalmist does. So he's able to pray honestly without trying to exert control over the sovereignty of his good God. So instead of demands, he questions and he pleads. The need is clear, but the hope is just as clear. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Here's part of the reality of a a season like this for us. In a time like this one, the need is felt and the hope is declared. Okay, the need is felt, but the hope is declared. I'm experiencing the need. I can explain in profound and ugly detail what the need is. I don't yet feel the hope, but I will declare it. I have, I have experience over here with my need, but I will declare my hope, right? And so he's able to express both. So he says, even in the difficulty of this stanza, he still has hope in the Word of God. I hope in your Word in verse 81. He refuses to forget the statutes of the Lord. I will not forsake your statutes, he says. He even knows that the commandments of God are ever reliable. In verse 86, your commandments are sure. So in the midst of all that he feels, he's declaring what is true about the Word of God. So this is how he prays. But, but then again, because this is Psalm 119, we're constantly driven toward the Word of God and the power and the effectiveness of what the Word of God is like inside of our lives. If we're going to pray these prayers with the psalmists, friends, it's critical to get to know the Word of God and how to trust it. I mean, to actually know it, to actually read it, actually learn what it says. Not act as if I know what it says, but never having read the Word. Not to act as if I have uh, read it all, but it's been six or eight, nine, ten, twelve, thirteen months since I've cracked open my Bible. In what exactly do we hope if we pray the prayer in verse 81, right? I'm worn out with waiting for for your rescue, God, but I have hoped in your Word. In what exactly are we hoping? What exactly are we refusing to forget if we agree with David in verse 87? What exactly are we refusing to forget? Guys, the point is this. If we are ignorant of what the Word actually says about God and with what, with what life with God is like, then these prayers just won't do us any good. I would encourage you, if you're looking for something to do with your Bible study this week, or maybe something new, maybe something you haven't done in a while, I would encourage you as you go through God's Word that you start making a list of the kinds of passages of Scripture that speak to the character and the nature and the work of God. If you highlight in your Bible, highlight them. If you journal, write these things down and just begin a list of the passages that speak to who God is. And in that thing, we start to find hope, 
those are the things that we say, I will not forget them even in my darkest hour. A few passages that are like that. And as I was compiling these, we could have gone on all day, but here are a handful. We read one last week, Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good. You are good and you do good. You may not know it or not, but you have now memorized some Scripture because you can say that. You are good and you do good. Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, a passage most of us probably have rolling around somewhere in the backs of our heads. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't need anything else, for God will guide me. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah is brought into the presence of God and he begins to see the angelic beings swirling around the throne of God and he begins to hear them. And as their voices come clear, here's what he says, what he hears the angels say about God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Friends, that's not a moment at which the nation of Israel was ruling over all of the planet and so the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. That was a low ebb of the people of God when it didn't feel like he was anywhere and the prophet is taken into the presence of God so that he could see reality. And reality was the whole earth is full of the glory of God. I will hope in your word. I refuse to forget the precepts of God. Another beautiful passage about who God is and what God has done for us that I don't want to forget and in which I can place hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is the passage, by the way, that gave this church its name. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What great news. And I can put my hope in that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, speaking of Jesus Christ, says this, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Hang on to this concept here for a few minutes about the connection between creation and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Am I reading the Word of God? Am I letting the Word of God soak itself inside of my heart and my mind and making its difference inside of me? Am I even memorizing passages that strike me? Because if so, then I know exactly what it is I put my hope in. Then I can tell you this is what I refuse to forget, even inside of my pain. So much inside of the middle of this stanza is full of this language of how long, and they persecute me without falsehood. Verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. At the end of verse 86, they persecute me with falsehood. I need your help. One of the things that I have done going through Psalm 119 is I've sort of, sort of gone back to the life of David and I've just kind of been reading through that life. And as you read through that life, what you begin to see are the real-life situations and examples and issues that lead to so much of what is expressed inside of the Psalms. The difficulty, the darkness, the pain, the division that he walked through become his expression to God inside of the Psalms. Now, David didn't write all of them. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. And some of the Psalms we can actually connect back to the life of David in very specific moments. 
So as I've been doing this, I want you to sort of keep with me here because we're, we're coming back in a great big circle about what David's experienced and what he's teaching us about these seasons with God. If you go back in the life of David, early in his life in 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, you begin to see the division that's coming between him and King Saul. David is this young upstart general. He's very good at what he does, and the people love him for it. Saul's son, Jonathan, has become David's best friend. Saul's daughter, Michael, has fallen in love with David and has become his wife. And so Saul's natural response to all of this going on with David is to try to kill David. (laughs) And so that then begins chapter after chapter after chapter of pursuit back and forth of Saul trying to kill David until finally in the middle of a battle, Saul loses his life. All of this pursuit, they persecute me without cause. My enemies pursue me. This is real for David, right? We get to read that. Heather reminded me of a passage of Scripture I want to read this morning from the Psalms. Chapter 142, in this context of David dealing with these kinds of difficulties in pursuit and persecution, Psalm 142 in your Bible, it probably tells you that this was a psalm that David composed in a cave. And I'm just going to read it. Verse 1, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. How often have you felt that, right? I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Tend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name, The righteous will surround me, for you deal bountifully with me. While he is in a cave, David expresses what's going on in his soul, but then he also says, but I'm going to leave it to you, God, because you are my refuge, and in you I am going to hope. If we go back in the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 24, It's one of these stories of David fleeing and Saul pursuing. David has a handful of men around him who are loyal to him. Saul has his armies. Saul has his special forces. And we find David in a cave in 1 Samuel chapter 24. He's hiding there with his men. Saul has sort of surrounded, not knowing that David is inside of the cave. Saul enters the cave, and the Old Testament is great about stuff like this. He enters the cave to go to the bathroom. And as he's doing so, David cuts off the edge of his cloak. And as Saul is on his way out, here's what David says in in chapter 24, verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave after Saul. My lord, the king, and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. There is no one here to save me. I am surrounded. But God, you are my refuge. I'm going to place this in your hands. 
I'm not going to take it into my hands. He actually does it. Isn't that incredible? Evil is done to him, but as he puts it in verse 87 of Psalm 119, I won't forsake your precepts. I won't stop living like I belong to you. So what will I do? This, this is, this is it has become this week for me a, a powerful moment of reflection. So what will I do with the wrongs that are done to me? And afterward, if you want to, I'll line you up and I'll let you all know the wrongs that you have done. I won't do that, right? Just making sure you guys are still with me. What will I do with the wrongs that are done to me? Well, Phil's flesh says this. I want them to know that I can do them just as much wrong as they have done me. I can do them more damage than they have done me, and off we go. That's what rises up inside of my flesh. What if I decide instead to hope in the Word of God, to place my hands in the sovereign will of my good God who does good? What if that's what I actually did instead? How different would life be for the children of God? At the very end of this stanza, as we reach the moment of transition, as we, sort of poetically speaking, reach the very bottom of this pit, verse 88, he says this, In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. At the very center of the psalm, that's what verse 88 is, it's the center of Psalm 119. This is the prayer of the psalmist struggling for life. He prays for a revived heart. He prays to a God of mercy, to a God of steadfast love. And he wants that mercy shown to him so that he may live in order to continue to live out the Word of God. It reminded me of a passage of Scripture that comes from the Apostle Paul, another man who knew persecution and struggle and difficulty. And when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's part of what the Apostle Paul tells you and me. But we have this treasure, and he's speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul tells us the disciple of Jesus Christ may be crushed, but there is always a way through. We don't have to be left with unresolved confusion. We don't have to be left with just perplexion. We don't have to be left with just despair. Because we are never left alone by God to be utterly destroyed. And guys, because the God of the Bible exists, this God really does exist. He is powerful and He cares for us. Our pain does not have to be the end of the story. Going through these last three stanzas, I've, I've gone back and I've reread some sections of a book um, called Walking Through Twilight. And it was uh, published uh, last year, 2017. The author is uh, Dr. Douglas Groteis. He's a professor at Denver Seminary. 
I actually had the chance to study under him a little bit. Some of you may remember him. He's actually come down and been a part of one of our Every Thought Captive events. Well, a few years ago, his wife Becky was diagnosed with a rare form of fatal dementia called progressive, uh, primary progressive aphasia. And um, it, it was inside of the book that he writes, Walking Through Twilight, um, he speaks of how destructive this, this was to her in a lot of ways. She was a writer, an editor, a lecturer. He actually has a photo in the book of her Mensa card. And so she has this disease now that just begins to strip her of her mind and eventually strip her of her body as well. The book itself is fascinating because it is his personal memoir as he's just sort of openly and honestly walking through everything that he and his wife Becky have had to deal with. So it's not just, and it's not just personal memoir, he then also does some theological reflections, some philosophical reflections as someone who's trying to remain faithful to God through this season where his life is just being torn to shreds. And as it turns out, Becky passed away about three days ago. But here's some of what uh, Dr. Grotice says inside of this book. This first little section I'm going to read to you is early in the book. Uh, he's learned what's happened to her. She's actually been admitted into a psych ward, and he's learned that she's had some procedures done to her that he had not approved of. And he says this, I was no model of sanctity while thrashing about in this cauldron of white-hot chaos. There was no peace that passes all understanding. What passed understanding was the meaning of these uncharted events. I had let them steal most all of my affection for God. I lost much of my fear of Him as well. I was insolent before the Almighty. My foundations were shaken, but my responsibilities were intensified. The one thing I could not do was ignore God. I'm a God-haunted man who knows God and is known by God. We feel that tension. This is like the psalmist saying this to us over and over. Later on inside of the same chapter, he puts it like this. If we are tempted to look elsewhere for meaning and hope in this suffering, we must return to the earnest confession of Peter. Where else can we go? Like Peter, I know too much to go back. I cannot become an atheist, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a New Ager, a Muslim, a misotheist. He describes in the book a group of people who call themselves misotheists. They believe God exists and they hate Him. I can't become a misotheist or even agnostic. I know too much to go back. As the simple gospel song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I cannot leave Jesus permanently. My trust waxes and wanes, but unlike the routine of the tides, it's unpredictable. Unlike Peter, I have not denied Jesus before others, but like a fool, I have told God off in the presence of another. When I am outraged at God, I try to think of God and Christ hanging on a cross for me. This sometimes brings me back to theological and psychological sanity, if not sanctity. I must work with what I have and seek more as I walk through an ever-darkening twilight. The best way to be angry at God is on your knees. Hoping that the hate will be transformed into submissive love in the divine presence. I'm worn out, waiting for your rescue, but I will hope in your word. This isn't the end for the psalmist. The psalmist actually begins to work us out of this step by step. 
And in verse 89, here's how it goes. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By Your appointment they stand this day, for all things are Your servants. If Your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It might feel like a subtle point, but I have found it profound the more that I reflect on it. As the psalmist begins to make his way out, here's where he starts. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures from generation to generation. Notice this. The psalmist doesn't begin with, but I feel your love like I've never felt it before. He doesn't start there. He starts with these objective, unchanging realities about creation itself. Is it possible that God has literally hardwired creation so that we begin, can begin to find our way out of these dark seasons of life? Though it feels as if it is, the psalmist says the world is literally not spinning out of control. It's not. <laughs> You see, the fixed regularity of creation, the fixed reliability of creation for the psalmist is actually a reflection of the fixed point hope that is God and His Word. Does that make sense? Because this is fixed and this is regular, it actually leads me now to see God as that as well. The mountain still stands and the trees still rise and praise to you and the sun will rise in the morning. Your word, O Lord, is forever fixed in the heavens. God has established the earth, and it stands fast. You see, as far as Scripture is concerned, guys, and we see this all over, but especially in the Psalms and in wisdom literature, creation itself draws our attention to God. It even helps us understand the nature of God when our experience of Him is fuzzy and confused and difficult. When we think of those who have walked through difficult times with God, we think of the book of Job. And right in the middle of the book of Job, we have this great chapter, Job chapter 28, and it's all about how Job is wrestling with where he finds wisdom and where God has put wisdom. And here's part of what he says in Job 28, beginning in verse 23. God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and the seas and everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning and the thunder, then he sought, meaning wisdom, and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. Even in the midst of his darkness, He sees the wisdom and the goodness of God and the fixedness and the reliability of creation. As the psalmist puts it in chapter 119, 
There at the end of verse 91, for all things are your servants. All of creation serves the purposes of God. There's this great thing that C.S. Lewis says about us and our drive to science and and how C.S. Lewis puts these things together. He says this, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. I can see this orderliness in creation because this is who God is. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. This is so important for us. These truths about God, these truths revealed inside of His Word, friends, they are not affected by how often human beings change their moral outlook from generation to generation. From culture to culture and generation to generation, what sometimes we call moral progress is exactly the opposite, but the psalmist can say, no no matter what swirls around me, your faithfulness endures from generation to generation. How often has the church been told, you're just out of date, you're behind the times, you're regressive? How often are we told that some new point of view or political program is the only way now to view moral behavior and to disagree is to just hate people? In reality, there is only one direction for genuine moral progress to logically occur, and that is in the direction of the Word of God. God's Word endures. You and I stumble around it as if in the dark. We're in the dark. God's Word is the light. And because that is true, we can declare it even when we don't feel it, that the faithfulness and the mercy and the truth of God endures forever. As David puts it in Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They actually comfort me. Isn't that cool? Verse 92, he says this, For if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Eight times in Psalm 119, the psalmist says that the law of God is his delight. He will delight in the Word of God. This is the eighth. This is the last time he says this. You see, what he is doing is he's telling us, I have delighted in the Word of God, and I have gone through this darkness and persecution, and now I can tell you what the consequence is of delighting in the Word of God. I'm living in God. If I had not delighted in your Word, I would be done. I would be over. But he's showing us what the consequence is of delighting in the Word of God, even in our darkest times. He went to God and His Word in the midst of His struggle. He stuck with it. He found delight in it. He meditated in it. And now he can say, I did not perish. So he continues to say, and I will never forget your precepts. He now has even more reason to say so and even more experience to back up the power and the effectiveness of the Word of God. So his witness to God's Word is that it has given him life not the death that he felt in his darkest hour. Then this magnificent phrase in verse 94, I am yours, save me. Would you just repeat that prayer after me? I am yours, save me. Say it one more time. I am yours, save me. See there, you've just memorized some more Scripture. Turn that into prayer. 
You might even have to say that sometimes over and over and over. I am yours. Save me. This is this confidence, rely, confident reliance in this kind of relationship that he knows that he has with his God. This relationship is not fickle. God is not deaf. God is not powerless. God's work is life inside of us, and it is good. So I can land on this confession, I am yours. And I can pray this prayer, save me. I've laid it all out before him. I've lifted up my questions and all of my pain and difficulty to him. And I have also recognized his awesome power and character. As we read and as Peter says, where else will I go? There's no place else for me to go. Only God has the means now to deal with me. Save me. I am yours. Save me. I have seen a limit to perfection, he says. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. And here's what he means by that. I've, I have seen every possible limit to what human beings can do. There is no such thing as perfection inside of human beings. I've seen those limits. I've experienced the pain when you fall off the cliff of that limit, right? I've seen those limits. But there are no limits to the goodness and the power and the work of God. Your commandments are so much more exceedingly broad. Guys, so often when we are in pain or confusion or difficulty, the limits and the imperfections of others become magnified. It's just part of what happens when we struggle or when we grow confused and fuzzy in life. <clears throat> they don't do enough for me. They abandoned me when this happened. They didn't do this for me. It's just natural. Those kinds of limitations rise up inside of our hearts, and we see, see and feel and experience those limitations. And then the temptation is, is to take those limitations that we've experienced from other people and impose them upon God and to assume then that He has limits and that He has abandoned me and that He hasn't taken care of me and His eyes are no longer on me. You see how that happens? Psalmist doesn't let us do that. I've seen limitations in every human being I know, but I refuse to believe that that's who my God is. He is good and He does good. His commandments are perfect. They are exceedingly broad, well beyond anything otherwise I would ever experience. So the psalmist teaches us not to make that leap but to see instead that God has no limits on His goodness, on His kindness, of His steadfast love. So friends, may we be filled with the strength of Jesus Christ in absolutely all things. May we be deeply rooted in His love through all situations. And may we learn how wide and deep and beyond our understanding is the love of God for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says it like this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted, grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray.